welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of KestAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. So a question for both of you. Do we have any characters in Broadway musicals named Henri? Oh, there must be. I mean, there's so many French shows, um, <clears throat> you know, be it, you know, set in France, Can Can, Ambassador. I mean, just so many. There has to be an honoree. Uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing jumps out at me. But um, Michael, what about you? I don't know. I was thinking maybe The Gay Life, but I don't really know that show. Oh, that's a good show. Um, yeah, um, it, it has to do with the gay 90s, by the way, um, uh, even though in 1961, the term gay was being bending about. Um, oh, well, there is Henry in South Pacific, and he speaks French, so I suppose it would actually be Henri. Yes, yes, that sounds right to me. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are lost that are wondering why I'm asking this, is because yeah. there's a, uh, a hurricane slash tropical storm making its way through the New York City area right now called uh, Hurricane Now Tropical Storm Henri. And uh, it seems to have, um, have at least uh, gone to the east uh, end of Long Island and headed up the uh, coast towards the Boston area. Peter, you have to uh, call home and make sure oh, that all, your, all yeah. your friends are doing okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, uh, it's a little bit confusing about uh, uh, this week's show because we are going to speak to Douglas Carter Bean and Andy Einhorn, but that recording was made last week when I was on the road uh, with uh, Peter and Michael. I wasn't on the road with them. I was on the road, but the recording was made with Peter and Michael and Douglas Carter Bean and Andy Einhorn. And we're going to play that this morning. Uh, and last week, of course, uh, Matt Temanini and, and uh, Grace Aki talked to Andy Carl and Orfe, and that was a f- really fun interview. So uh, that's where we were last week. And uh, next week, we're going to speak to author and professor of musicology, Dominic McHugh. With us this morning, we have two very special guests. Douglas Carter Bean and Andy Einhorn are with us. The two of them are mounting a new production of Babes in Arms at the Forestburg Playhouse and are here with us on a Sunday morning to chat about it. Thanks, guys, for joining us on Broadway Radio. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. So you're doing a uh, production at the Forestburg Playhouse in the 75th anniversary of the Miracle of the Forest. Uh, And it's uh, playing from August 24th through September 5th. And you've done a little bit of uh, rewriting and revisioning. So tell us about your production. Well, um, I was uh, doing another podcast. This is a podcast-related crime, this whole whole production. Um, (laughs) I was doing another podcast where they, you have to pick a favorite cast album. And, uh, all the albums I liked were taken. So I just chose Babes in Arms because it has such a spectacular score, not really knowing the 
book beyond let's put on a show in a bar. And uh, I did it and Ted Chapin heard it and liked it. And he said, oh, you should take a look at the book. So he sent me the original script, which is written by Rogers and Hart. Um, no need for a book writer there. They did it all. Um, you know, and, it, and you really do appreciate Lin-Manuel Miranda all the more that he can do both. Uh, and Anthony Newley as well. But so it was, it was, a, and that was, but there was, it was kind of bad in that late 30s way. But it had a remarkable thing in the story, which is very optimistic about the idea that all you need to do theater is really say you're going to do theater and then it begins. It's unlike the other performing arts usually take a lot of money and collaboration and, and deals, whereas theater, you can just start doing it and things fall into place. And the other was that it was it dealt with race and it dealt with um, the original production had the Nicholas Brothers. And uh, the kids put on a show and they get money from a racist. And he says, cut the Nicholas Brothers or I pull my money. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. And then the, the third little nugget of delight is there is a lot of political discussion um, about communism and, and socialism and democracy and fascism. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting now as it was in that period. So got a great score you got a couple of great themes some characters who don't embarrass themselves embarrass themselves too much and i just started working on it i wrote it and uh i showed it to ted and ted said you should get andy Andy and i worked together on cinderella and uh and uh we we tucked in and, and uh we did a week at my barn in pennsylvania with the cast and now we're here in forestburg putting on the show in the press release for your production, uh, you quoted Doug as say as calling this one of the greatest scores ever written for a musical, and I'm sure prove me wrong. Many prove of us right now. I'm sure many of us would know. On the contrary, I'm sure many of us would agree. But uh, oddly enough, uh, the press release does not mention a single song. Uh, so, uh, just for the record, the the most famous ones that I know are "My Funny Valentine," "Where or When," "Johnny One Note." And I wish I were in love again. Uh, is it safe also, to oh, oh, but you're leaving out the lady as a tramp. Oh, yes, I'm leaving out the lady as a tramp. Is it a safe, safe to assume that all of those are in it? Yes. Yes, of course. And then there's yeah. a one, then there's a, the title song. And then there's a really song that's a favorite of mine called Imagine. There's one of my favorites, which is mine too. Uh, all, mine too. all at once. <laughs> all, all at once. once. Which is what a, this gem of a song i mean i think for me when doug called me about the show obviously i knew the score i didn't know the book i had also i knew of the movie which is what we're not doing here uh but to realize in the 1930s when you when they were writing this show just hit after hit after hit after hit in that perfect Rogers way I just actually right before this was in Aspen doing a concert of all Rogers and Hart and Rogers and Hammerstein and you know continually floored by the outpouring of work of this man who was able to capture two very different musical voices the one with Hart which is just so effortless and full of uh forgive the pun Hart uh, when he wrote these songs, but even something like All at Once, which is not one of the well-known songs of the score, in rediscovering the song, it's a gem. It's like a 32-bar gem that I wish people knew. And so we're going to show it to them again. What about the song You Are So Fair? Is that in it? 
that's very that's, interesting. Yeah. That, that was at the request <laughs> at the request of uh, Ted Chapin. Uh, we have not put that in because we have found we put it in one reading, and I found we've both agreed that it pales in comparison mm-hmm. to "I Wish I Were in Love Again," and so that's the only song that we've we've not we've not included. And in the, uh, of course, famously in the encores uh, production of Babes in Arms, they cut the um, the lyrics of the of the song called All Dark People, which referred to referring to the, the Nicholas. Actually, 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 the, the song is called Light on the, Light on Your Feet. And, oh, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that that's that's and, and we're doing the way the encores. Yeah, do, which is we do the verse, but not the refrain. The actual title is Light on Your Feet. Yeah, that's according to the the original pro, uh, opening night program. That's what they called it. Oh, OK. Something. Yeah, that's news to me, too. Yeah, because uh, yeah. I've always heard it by the other title. Hmm. In our score, I think my guess is they probably they retitled it, it, they retitled, yeah. it after the yeah. production. All right. Now, um, Valentine, of course, a lot of people think my funny Valentine just simply refers to February 14th, that type of Valentine. Yes. But of course, he was a character. He was a character named Valentine. Uh, yeah. Have you retained that? Yes, yes, of course. yes. Now, as I mentioned before, we, we started recording just last night. I saw Broadway Beyond the Golden Age, the great follow up to Rick McKay's movie. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, at one point, Carol Burnett is talking about her early days in New York. And she says that right before she got the audition for Once Upon a Mattress, she auditioned for, an, I believe she says, an off-Broadway production of Babes in Arms. And I'm a little confused because I know there was a rewrite in right. 1959 right. by George Oppenheimer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Oppenheimer, the Oppenheimer version. <laughs> but I, but I the thought. Oppenheimer version. <laughs> I, I thought that that production had only played um, maybe out of town somewhere or maybe. It did. I think it was, I think it was a tour. And uh, that was Richard Rogers didn't want uh, you know, the, there's a, a character in the show, Petey, mm. Peter, and he's a communist. Right. And uh, and is quite wonderful and funny and sympathetic. Um, and he's being played here in at, in Forsberg by a wonderful, charming actor. So uh, he wanted that gone because it was the 50s. And uh, also the, he wanted the race uh, discussion cut from the show. And it's about a summer stock. It's not about kids. Uh, in the right. original premise, it's um, it's children whose parents are going off on a old vaudevillians going out on tour, and the kids, in order not to go to the work farm, have to have work, so they create a show. So, as far as you guys know, did it not end up being revived off Broadway in 1959? I, I don't know if it ever got. I don't think it got to New York or off Broadway. I don't know that that tour did anything. I mean, it was understood that that production. It's my understanding from what I've heard is that production is uh, was meant to be for high schools and, and community mm-hmm. theaters and summer stocks. Mm-hmm. It wasn't meant to be Broadway. Well, at one point, I guess Carol Burnett auditioned for it. So like, maybe they initially had yeah. different plans for it. But and then... she did do a recording of Johnny one note on her album showstoppers. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great version. <laughs> she doubles up. She doubles up on the awe. <laughs> We're tripling up. We're here. tripling up. And she doubles up. <laughs> So what well, is the markedly twenty one years old? And she's going to pass out. But <laughs> <laughs> so what is markedly different about your version from the other two? I think the market version is that 
Um, it was three hours long, the original version, and it had wow. a cast of 50. Wow. Our version has a cast of 10, mm -hmm. and it runs an hour and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, what I did was I took out, there's that kind of, I call it musical comedy crap, mm -hmm. you know, which is very big in the 30s. When you see encores, you're like, oh, God, here we go. Here's the musical <laughs> comedy crap. And it usually involves like a, 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 nap, a, a handkerchief with lipstick on it. And that'll go on for five or six pages. So I took that out and only left the really interesting, relevant stuff, the stuff about race, the stuff about politics, the stuff about, you know, the stock market, all those things were interesting. And I, and what was left was an hour and a half. Stuff. And then I, as an author, I did a rewrite of it and a polish and what they would have, you know, what I, if I'd been in the room with, uh, Lorenz Hart, um, what I would have said. Right. Uh, and I always said, hey, why don't you do this? Uh, it, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? We don't really need to do that. So that's what it is. It's a, it's a, it is a, I think it's got a drive to it. I think it's got fun to it. I think it's got, uh, it's got, it has a point of view. It has, a, it, it, it has the, what I like to think is the author's intent and the author's uh, instincts. It has a real style to it. And it also has a real uh, sense of um, tone in terms of matching the wit of the score with the book. And now that the book is streamlined in a great way, it feels like the ins and outs of the songs feel like we're sort of delivering the songs right on a, on a tray right for you as, the, as they fall. I mean, right after the overture, the fact that the first song of the show, this has always floored me about the show is the first song that you hear is where or when mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it tells you exactly the show that you're walking into, but it has not only a, a charm about it, but almost a, a twinkle in its eye. And the way that Doug has staged it and written it, the, the sense of a troupe coming on stage and telling this story really feels front and center. And it, it delivers in a, in a way, in a, in a similar way to like how Pippin was told in seventies, I feel. Hmm. I was always surprised. Well, <laughs> I was surprised when I saw the Encores version, because I guess I didn't really know this beforehand, that it's the ingenue female who sings Lady is a Tramp. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, is, is that still the case? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and I think it, the best part of the pandemic has been Doug, myself, and our brilliant choreographer, Eleanor Scott, sitting on Zoom every Friday morning. And my favorite one was when we were actually talking about the song, Lady is a Tramp, and, and really making sure that people are listening to those lyrics and what she is singing about it. And again, it's, it's a perfect example of Rogers being a very forward thinker as a writer with heart and, and putting that front and center. Yeah, when she says she's a tramp, she doesn't mean she's a slut. She means right. She's a homeless she person. means she means she's, she's a, a free person. a free spirit. Also, yeah, yeah. she's a, yeah. she's a, she's cutting, traveling on a boxcar across America. She's she's a runaway. Hmm. So it's uh it it has a counterculture uh, feeling, which I which I love about it. It is funny that there are two songs from this score, "My Funny Valentine" and "The Lady Is a Tramp," that have both been taken out of context <laughs> and actually put almost in the wrong way actually because yeah. people don't understand what the actual context was 
especially in the movie of Pal Joey, what they did with oh. The Lady is a Tramp. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Any of it. Um, by, uh, by and large, though, um, what's really interesting to me about Babes in Arms um, is, is an ancillary fact, and that is that at one point in time, it was the only musical playing on Broadway. This was during the Depression. And uh, so whenever we think times are really tough, and of course, times have been tough, the fact remains that um, things were really tough then because there was no pandemic, and yet only Babes in Arms was playing on Broadway. As wow. Isn't that something? That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It opened at the Majestic and then moved to the Imperial. And I was like, if it's the only musical, why did it get kicked out of the Majestic? <laughs> Phantom was coming in. It was the Schubert Theater. It was the actual the oh. big-ass Schubert Theater. Oh, okay. And the, original, the other, the other uh, wonderful factor, um, <clears throat> though we have no record of it other than some photographs, is that the ballets were done by George Balanchine. Because mm-hmm. I did put a call into um, um, City Ballet and say, by any chance, is this like, do you know of this? And I heard back that said, we don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> hmm. But he does a Johnny One Note Ballet, which is a spinoff of Aida. And then he did a, and then he did a second ballet, which is um, the story of the, uh, the communist boy playing the stock market mm. but we're changing that ballet and making it about the african-american character who leaves the group to see america and comes back okay one of the things about babes in arms is they really were looking for young people and mm. um of course even though they wanted teenagers people like alfred drake were 22 and um but the bottom line is teenagers were the people who were really supposed to be involved have you cast teenagers um, they're 20. Uh, the average age of our cast is 21. Most of them are just out of college. Uh-huh. And I wanted it to be about that age. Mm-hmm, sure. Like just that. Uh, and so they're all 21, 22. I think we have, I think grandma's 23. The thing that I find hilarious is like, they're so young and energetic. I'll say, just run the lines here. And they just get up and start doing the whole scene. I'm like, no, run, <laughs> run lines. You don't have to get up and do it. <laughs> they're very enthusiastic and they all sing they sing dance, beautifully they play music and they play instruments. musical instruments which by the way we weren't john doyle in this thing when we came up with it it just was uh, uh, an email that i sent out once we were cast said who plays instruments and they all wrote back and they all wrote back <laughs> with two or three instruments i was shocked mm-hmm. the doyling of america yeah indeed. <laughs> <laughs> every actor i mean like concert violin quality yeah you know violin a beautiful jazz guitar i mean it's shocking what we have yeah remember when people had to be triple threats and so now they have to yeah. be quadruple threats i was threats. just going to say yeah. that being a triple threat is not good enough yeah <laughs> but it's also it's actually really nice in uh hearing a pared down because we have two pianos a bass drum and a guitar really as the center of the piece so sort of scoring it back down to almost like a, you know, I, I like to call them the jug band, but, you know, a jazz It's band. like a Django Reinhardt, yeah. Stephanie Holly kind of vibe. And what's really nice is hearing the songs threadbare in a very positive way. So you're really putting the lyric first and then doing the thing that John Doyle did very well, I thought, in Sweeney, which is really pairing musical instruments with characters so you know for instance when we're doing i wish i were in love again when gus is singing 
you know, we have the sax playing along with him. And then when it goes to Dolores's verse, then we switch to the to the fiddle playing with with her. So being able to help give some character to the voices that way with the musical instruments is really fun. And it and it just sort of helps punctuate the lyric, I think. I did two uh, uh, high school production of this show back in the day and then a community theater production like two years later. And then actually, then we did a college production. I did that show, the 1959 version, like three times within four years. <laughs> and and one of them I conducted, but then also I played, uh, they, they added a, for that version, they added a character called the stage manager. I wonder where they got that idea from. I think that's the Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's the Oppenheimer, yeah. Yes. Mm. Oppenheimer? <laughs> so, uh, Douglas, you are also uh, bringing a show uh, to Off-Broadway, uh, Fairy right. Cakes. Uh, tell us about uh, how does a one get in a word edgewise when you have Mo Rocca, Jackie Hoffman, and Jilly Halston in the same room? <laughs> I'm sorry. There's also Brooks S. Mankus and Anne Harada. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not pretend those two are demure. What, well, yes. um, what one does. I, I didn't want to stress you I've out too them. much. My, I, I've told them all that the persona I will adopt in the rehearsal process is sort of exhausted caregiver. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll just say, like, all right, just move over here. <laughs> no, they're all. The thing about these people are. They are remarkable comedians. I mean, just the very best theater comedians you get. Um, but they're also actors and very serious and dedicated actors. And they really want it. They really love theater. That's what this production began as, just me finding people who really love theater and wanted to do it uh, in a very and as pure a way as we could. So that's what it is. They want to do the work. I mean, they'll mock me. There's no good. You got to love that. <laughs> I mean, the last play I did with Brooks at one point, he was couldn't remember a line. He said, line. And the uh, assistant stage manager gave him the line. And he said, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne Harada famously, whenever I submit a play for her to do, she um, sends it back the next morning um, proofread. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Circling all the... Did you mean semicolon three question marks? <laughs> you know, adore her. But I but I truly adore these are like the best people to be in a room with. And I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to be in a room with them after, you know, we'll be double vaxxed and masking and taking sticking things up our nose to test it. But the idea of being in a room with those people is irresistible to me. So right now you're scheduled for October 14th through January 2nd, 2022 at the Greenwich House uh, t- uh, with Fairy Cakes. Tell us what Fairy Cakes is. We know who's Fairy in Cakes it. Fairy Cakes is, it started many years ago. Um, I had, uh, my husband and I, Lewis, adopted two kids. And wow. I, I started to get, we got children's books, like all the great children's stories. And I would start to read them to my kids. And they were just so horrible. <laughs> just vile little stories of just the <laughs> wrong things being taught if you have a girl it's like what well, i'm gonna teach you this so the great thing about being a writer and the great thing about children is is you can just sort of point to a picture and make stuff up and they don't know any better and that's how it started so i had all these versions of different fairy tales that i'd done in my head and and i always wanted to do something with fairies together and then it 
I was watching a production in London of Midsummer Night's Dream, and I went, "Well, oh, the fairies when they're not doing all the stuff with Oberon and Titania, wouldn't it be fun to see what they're doing? Let's have them all have day jobs, and one can be uh, Sleeping Beauty's fairies, and they could be uh, Cinderella's fairy godmother, and the Tooth Fairy, and and the Peter Pan's little friend, and all this stuff, and that's how it started. So I just started writing it, and I thought, well." how what can make it more magical and so i have it in iambic pentameter and rhyming couplets because wow. that's what you do in a pandemic <laughs> exactly you literally just say well i've got the time and you spend your time slapping your thighs going to trying to make everything scan wow and 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 so how did fairy cakes uh, fairy cakes leap from uh your thought to the stage did uh did, did you workshop it or is this the first time it's on its I had, feet or i've done so many readings of it in my living room uh -huh. um that i have the feeling someone the first time someone stands up they'll seem over the top <laughs> I'm just like what are you doing you crazy person no i've done so many uh, i just i read i had to read this a lot just to get the, the feel of it and it's uh so i i it's a cast of 12 it, it wow. is it is outrageous costumes. I mean, there's you have to have a you have to have a hobgoblin, you have to have a mermaid, you have to have Elizabeth the first shows up in one scene. You just have I mean outrageous costumes. And so I truly thought maybe I'll just sell this to a catalog or something, and people in high schools and community theaters and colleges will do it. I don't and I happen there's a young director named Thomas Loud who just already produced producer who already won his first uh tony award for um american utopia and uh i gave it to him and he said he wanted to produce it and i said you're mad all right so here we are here we <laughs> wow, are wow that's great and then and then i said and then we did the casting which is basically oh i just bumped into oh i just bumped in that's me casting oh i just <laughs> oh i just got an email from hey you want to do a show okay gets good <laughs> That I, I I can't wait to see it, Andy. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to um, uh, bring our listeners up to speed here. Your uh, first production in, uh, on Broadway was as a as a PA on the Light in the Piazza. Yes. Uh, then we had. Oh my uh, God. Then you played. Uh, uh, you conducted and played piano on Sondheim on Sondheim. You did the keyboard on Evita. You did Cinderella. You did Bullets Over Broadway, Holiday Inn, Hello Dolly with Bette Midler. Uh, they, you actually got a, you actually got a ticket for that because you got one of the best tickets because you were <laughs> were conducting it with uh, uh, with uh, Dancing Chorus Boys behind you while you were conducting. Right. <laughs> And then ducking, you ducking for my life. Yes. And then uh, finally, uh, music director, supervisor conducted in vocal arrangements for the most recent revival of Carousel. So tell us, tell us a story that you don't want anybody else to know. <laughs> no, no. I, I, what's it like out there for musical directors and conductors and things like that these days? Uh, as Broadway starts up again, uh, is it, are you being pulled in multiple directions? Yes. When Doug Carter Bean calls. <laughs> good. Well, that, you know, it, it's a good phone call to take when he calls. It's, no, no, it's great. Uh, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate. The shows I've worked on have been 
what I like to call dinosaur shows uh, <laughs> in the best way. Just sort of, I, I love Dolly, Carousel. Uh, Cinderella was a great experience in terms of taking a property that people know and really uh, bringing it back. A few years ago, I did a great production of Sound of Music that Jack O'Brien directed that we put out on the road for several years. And we were just talking about that last night up here. And, you know, I think it's important as we're coming back right now, I know there's a lot of discussion of sort of what titles should and should not be performed. But, you know, even when Doug did call about Babes in Arms and I started doing the research, I thought this is a really important story to be told right now, not only for the topics that are in it, but also it's a show about entertainment. And what I what I really hope coming out of this moment as we're bringing arts back and as I've been doing concerts, uh, I've done a lot with Audra during the last year and a half in the pandemic is just seeing that people are hungry to be entertained again. And I am thinking that it's so important right now with the moment to remember to be balancing entertainment with education and what mm -hmm. we're doing out in the theater. And I know that one of the things that's really fun about putting together something like Babes in this very safe space that I like to call it out here in either Doug's barn or out here at Forestburg is really having a sandbox to play in again and feeling like you're back in early days of your career where you're getting mm -hmm. to just explore things. Like right before we got on this, Doug said, what if, what if we put some singing at the end of the ballet? Okay, sure. Let's try it. And to have 10 actors who are game to do it, it reminds me of exactly why I got back into why I got into theater. And it feels like coming out of this moment, I'll speak for myself. And I think for a lot of people, we're, we're being given a second chance to come back and do what we love to do mm. and to bring entertainment to people. And that's, that's why we're doing this, you know? And I think of every project that I'm working on right now in development, because I have like five shows in development and the big discussion is sort of, how are we bringing entertainment back to people? And what are we there to do to not only provide that escapist feeling when you come into the theater, but also keep pushing the medium forward? Well, it is... It, it is it is very, very nice to know that shows like Hello, Dolly, uh, that there is still a place for shows like Hello, Dolly and mm -hmm. Babes in Arms. And boy, did that Hello, Dolly revival prove that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I thought so as well. And I thought it was great to have, you know, a, a massive scale form of entertainment that people could come. And it came right on the heels of an election that we don't want to remember. And yes. to have people come into the theater. I mean, I did a big, big, big Jerry Herman tribute that Pasadena Playhouse filmed during the pandemic. And the people who saw it were just fell in love with the joy of what Jerry did. And, you know, the fact that we lost him, obviously, is a huge loss in terms of... Uh, <laughs> a person in our industry, but, mm -hmm. it, but what he left us was joy. And I think that's the thing that I hope that we're all coming out of this is continuing to find that joy. And what I love that Doug is doing as a writer and a director is bringing joy to people. That that's our main job right now. We, we live in a time where we need that more than ever. Mm. Andy, I also wanted to point out that you cheat on Broadway um, all the time. In uh, your in your role in the New York Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony and out in Aspen and things like that, you're you're also conducting some of these uh, amazing amazing orchestras around the world. 
you know, uh, how, how does that crossover work for you? Or you, you ever think that uh, you get back into uh, uh, the Broadway pit and you're like, uh, I need I need 17 strings here. Do you think we can do that? <laughs> I always think that, yes. <laughs> but, but I like to think that when I go to symphony orchestras that I'm desecrating them with. <laughs> my art but but it's also it's really fun i mean i'm doing a big project this coming year with philadelphia orchestra uh premiering the john williams orchestrations of fiddler on the roof with orchestra which nobody's ever done before and we're using we're using the students from university of michigan um for for a lot of the roles and it's to me that's like one of the best projects uh to synthesize putting professional educational and an amazing property and when john williams and uh his people gave us the permission to do it i was like sign me up for that because nobody's ever heard those orchestrations on on stage so hopefully that'll be really fun I just yesterday was listening. I picked up an old album of John Williams conducting musical theater. Ah. And I'm sure you have it. He does a sweet, a sweet from that. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, do you know Paige Price over at Philadelphia Theater Company? You should hook up Mm -hmm. with her. You know, I do. Yeah. Aspen and uh, Philly, you know, got to know Paige. So uh, you, you mentioned some, some woman, Audra or something like that, that you do Mm -hmm. concerts with. Uh, Yes. Uh, tell us more about this person. Lindley, is she, is she up, know, up and coming? <laughs> up and coming woman? Yeah. She's up and coming. We're working on the voice. We're working to see if Good. there's something there. Good. We'll, we'll see if there's something there. <laughs> Excellent. It's, it's perfect. So uh, both of you have your hands full. And, and this is, I am telling you, so uh, it, it fills my heart because we've had 18 months of of wishing we were somehow here again and mm. uh and and now now we are and you guys are bringing it to us and we really really need it and appreciate the work that you're doing up at Forestburg Playhouse you have babes at arms coming up uh those dates i had those dates in front of me and i've missed it now august 24th to august, september 5th. 5th that's it august 24th to september 5th and we'll have a link to that in the show notes Andy Einhorn and Douglas Carter-Bean, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway right. Radio. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Great. Have a great day. Thank you. So, Peter, uh, Stephen Bale just posted in the chat that uh, Mickey Grant has passed away. Have you ever mm. have any thoughts about Mickey? Oh, yeah. She was lovely. Um, she had a very long-running review at um, the Edison Theater, I believe it was, called Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. 
And what was interesting about that was the title, especially because um, where did that expression come from? And she told me that um, women she was working with at the time, one of them got into an accident. And um, when the uh, cop came over to say what happened, she said, don't bother me. I can't cope. And it became a, a real uh, touchstone type of um, expression that everybody in the office started using whenever anything uh, went wrong. <laughs> so um, which is kind of fun. But I'll tell you, she wrote one of the most moving songs that I have ever heard. And uh, God bless Stephen Schwartz for saying, Mickey, uh, I want you to write for Working, uh, the musical he did in 1978. And the song was so good, he made it the first act closer. And it's called, If I Could Have Been What I Could Have Been. I could have been something, meaning about how all of us think about the roads we didn't take. And indeed, if we just had breaks, if we were at the right place at the right time, if our parents supported us, whatever, that we could have been so much more than we've turned out to be. And it's something we're all haunted by in one way or another. So um, it was a terrific song, a wonderfully moving moment, and certainly the perfect song to end that act one. And um, but she had a great 11 o'clock number, too. He gave her the 11 o'clock number uh, Lynn Thigpen had um, called uh, Cleaning Lady, in which a woman talks about the fact, OK, yes, I'm a cleaning lady, but my daughter is not going to be a cleaning lady. I am going to make sure that she goes to college, gets an education, becomes an executive and that she will have cleaning ladies. So two great songs in working, no question. And for that matter, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope has some uh, wonderful songs as well. Um, so time brings about a change is very good. Um, and uh, certainly um, so many others. Uh, it, it's really worth hearing. It's a very nice review and <clears throat> ran well over a thousand performances. So how bad can it be? Hmm. Uh, so also this week, you got a chance to see uh, Merry Wives at the park. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, this was the ninth production of Merry Wives I've seen. Uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, of course, was the actual title. And it could be here, too, because what's very smart about this is they're, uh, they've said it in Harlem. So where does Windsor come up? Well, an apartment building is called Windsor. That's great. I thought that was a wonderful solution. Uh, so um, it's, it's a new adaptation. Um, and, uh, but I'm very surprised that the adapter uh, kept the thys and the these when people are speaking to each other, since uh, it, so much of it is um, colloquial in feeling. And there are anachronisms in terms of Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare didn't know anything about LeBron James, but here he is showing up in this uh, dialogue here. So, um, so uh, there's, there's an iPhone in it, you know, all that kind of business. Um, I'm, I'm very surprised uh, that um, somebody wears a pink triangle because that's uh, certainly indicative of something very, very different. But um, anyway, uh, terrific, terrific. Done with such style, such panache. Everybody in it is just terrific. And of course, what a thrill to be there in Central Park uh, and seeing it. And um, at the end of the show, uh, they take away the set. The set is very ornate. Uh, it, it, just when you think you've seen it all, no, you haven't. Um, it will reveal itself to show so much more. And just when you think you've seen it all, no, the, the, there's another surprise ahead. But finally, at the end of the show, they take away the scenery and you see the beauty of Central Park. And it really serves the show very, very nicely. So um, it also has a 21st century slant on relationships. Now, I don't know if you know about this, um, 
um, the original play, but um, allegedly Queen Elizabeth said to Shakespeare, I, but gee, I love those plays you've done where you've had Falstaff, you know, those Henry plays. Gee, he's terrific. What a great character. Why don't you do one where he's in love? Well, if that's what she asked for, that isn't what he gave her because it's not a case of Falstaff being in love. It's a story of Falstaff being a womanizer that he comes on to two women who happen to know each other very well. And because they each know that he's, he's snowing them well, then indeed they are going to get their revenge. And um, and so they're each going to play uh, as if they are interested in him just so they can humiliate him later, which indeed they do very successfully. Um, one has a husband who says, my wife would never cheat on me. One has a husband who says, yes, she would. And so there's a lot of uh, comic stuff gleaned from that as well. So I would say it's mm, 95% Shakespearean language, um, uh, but uh, it's it's great great fun. I do not miss this really it is definitely worth going to um it it, it surpasses the production i saw in london uh back in 1987 where um the two wives were cons- uh, played as if they were Lucy and Ethel, which was fun too. Um, even down to <laughs> lot, lot, but things go uh, a little awry. Uh, even the um, they had uh, piped in music that went, wah, 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 you know, the way they used to do in those uh, 50s sitcoms. So, so that used to be in first place for Merry Wives, but now this one is. Hmm. So you also got to uh, see the Book of Moron. Mm-hmm. At the Soho Playhouse, which is not the other one. No, <laughs> okay. no. Uh, I wonder what we would have called it if there were no such thing as the Book of uh, Mormon. But uh, this is Robert Dulac, um, who is uh, who's done quite a few monologues here, there, and everywhere. Um, and well, let me put it this way: um, he he certainly does a social commentary on uh, his views of life and contemporary world and what have you. He reminded me a great deal of George Carlin, and that in itself is a compliment from me because I thought George Carlin was the sun and the moon. Now, if if you didn't like George Carlin, you might like this show because this guy is tamer than George Carlin. And um, I would give George Carlin a 10 on a 10 scale. I would give Robert Dulac a three. However, let me tell you. The guy who was sitting in front of me was just bowled over with laughter, the type of guy who lurches forward in his chair uh, when he laughs and then springs back. And then the next joke, and he lurches forward in his chair because he's so overtaken with the um, with the humor. Um, really, uh, he must have lost 800 calories uh, at that mm-hmm. show from going back and forth and back and forth. So this is a show that is certainly humorous to a great number of people. Um, I, I know a critic who was sitting behind me who was laughing constantly. Um, so, uh, you know, we all have different senses of humor. Um, but, um, let me put it that way. If you don't like George Carlin, you may like Robert Dulac. Parenthetically, do you know who else laughs like that fellow you described lurching forward and, and pitching back? No, who? Sondheim. Really? I mm-hmm. saw him at a cabaret show. Actually, it was one of Steven Brinberg's show and I thought he was going to fall out of his chair. Wow. It was it was so wonderful to see him in that context. And that was the only time I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never I'll forget that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. OK. So, Michael, you uh, saw a number of shows at Feinstein's 54 Below. So uh, tell us about these. Yes, I've been very lucky in, in getting to see them. The first was uh, 
the show by someone who was a guest on our podcast uh, just before the show, Jason Danieli. And he did a wonderful show with musical director Joseph Thalkin, uh, musical director, pianist Joseph Thalkin. And as uh, Jason told us, he talk, he opened by talking about um, the new love in his life, or actually two new loves in his life, uh, his new girlfriend and uh, his new dog. And that was really <laughs> sweet. Uh, but the songs uh, were, were just beautiful, beautifully chosen. He, 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 he certainly spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, reminiscing, uh, especially at the beginning, about his late wife, Marin Maisie, whom, whom we all loved, and very, very touchingly, as you might imagine. Um, the songs uh, the, the, in the program were really great, everything from Charlie Chaplin's song, Smile, to um, a song that is not heard very often, of a really lovely song from Plain and Fancy called Young and Foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, that that show on the whole, I think, is kind of problematic, but it does have some really, really wonderful songs in it. And you should check out the cast album if you haven't uh, already done so. Um, what else did he sang? He sang Who Can I Turn To from Roar of the Grease Paint, uh, Soon from Strike Up the Band, All the Things You Are, mm-hmm. a, a gorgeous song from a show that's never ever done called Very Warm for May, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Night and Day, Cole Porter's Night and Day from Gay Divorce. Uh, there, I guess there were a lot of really popular songs from shows that people don't do anymore. <laughs> um, uh, the Nearness of You, Hoagy Carmichael song, uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, which is from a show that is done, still done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and you know what he ended with? Jason ended with a terrific Terrific song of all things, believe it or not, the song from the greatest American hero. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that is such a great song. I've heard a few other people do it out of context. Music by Mike Post and lyrics by Stephen Geyer. Um, I was really glad he did that. Um, then I saw Andre DeShields, the great Andre DeShields, do his show, which was called, uh, the title was Black by Popular Demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was quite a production. First of all, he had, um, in addition uh, to, uh, he had his music director, Sean Mays, and uh, then the the band and the and the singers were he had uh, Rudy Bird, Kimberly Marable, T- Laurie Tishfield, and Frida Williams. And the opening number was quite a production uh, number with costumes uh, of uh, built around a tr- traditional Haitian chant called Mau Mau Bet. And it moved on from there. Uh, there were a lot of songs that you probably would not have heard of, including something. I was so glad he did this. Um, I had not heard this since I was like 12. Somebody uh, did a musical setting of uh, the Declaration of Independence, or part of it anyway, with obviously words by Thomas Jefferson. And it actually, the song list does not say who wrote the music, uh, but I remember it hearing it in grade school and i think uh i think maybe the glee club performed it then and i did not hear it again till i heard it a couple of weeks ago courtesy of andre shields and company at at 54 below so that was really amazing and then um there were other lots of other wonderful songs including about six songs that 
Andre himself himself wrote the music and lyrics for. Uh, one was called "The Tragic Mulatto." Uh, really, really interesting song. Um, the one was called "Sister Girl." Now is the time. Uh, a song called "L O V E," but not the famous song that we know with that title. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it was just. Uh, an amazing performance. I, I can't wait to hopefully get to see Andre again in um, uh, uh, Hades Town when that reopens. I, if I understand correctly, he's not going to be doing all performances because he has some concert dates and things of that sort. But I really would really, really, really love to see him again in that. Um, and then the final show I saw, which maybe was the best of the three, it was absolutely amazing. Liz Calloway uh, in a song, in a show she decided to call Coming Around Again um, with her brilliant musical director, Alex Rybeck. And this included, among other things, several selections from one of the greatest solo albums <laughs> that I've ever heard that she made when she was back when she was starting her career uh, for Verace Saraband. And the title of that album is um, The Story Goes On, Liz Calloway on and off Broadway, including uh, that song from Baby, which, which, was, which really put her on the map. But also a song uh, that, uh, you know, uh, this song is the way she performs it, the way Liz performs it, you would think it's one of the greatest show tunes ever written. And it's called You There in the Back Row. And it is by uh, music by Sal Coleman and lyrics by Barbara Freed and from a very obscure show. But again, she makes it sound like the greatest hit and an all-time standard. So she is really amazing. Uh, I, I think uh, several people I know who were at this show say that she has only gotten better in terms of the beauty of her singing, the, 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 the excellence of her phrasing, her, her, her timing, her energy, every, everything about her is um, uh, she has matured so wonderfully as a performer. And I was very, very, very happy to be there. It was just one of the best experiences of my performing life. And uh, I'm going to hopefully continue to see some shows at uh, Feinstein's, including this Tuesday, Michael Feinstein himself is beginning a two-week residency at the club that that bears his name, and with a show called Summertime Swing. Uh, so I'll be there for that, and maybe I hope to see some of you there. And if, uh, as I say, he's he's there for two full weeks. So if you can't get there um, in the beginning, maybe you can get there uh, during the second week of the run. Hmm. All right. So that's great. Uh, Peter, you got to see Trial of the Potomac, the impeachment of Richard Nixon at a theater at St. Clement's. So tell us about that. Well, I think the title should simply be the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Uh, Trial in the Potomac doesn't tell us anything as specific as that does. Uh, I don't see why it's necessary. Mm. It's just one of the many questions I have about this show. Now, Rich Little, who's very famous for being a comedian, who um, imitates uh, various presidents. In fact, years ago, I saw him do a show called The Presidents, in which he um, imitated many, um, is very convincing as Richard Nixon, as you would expect Rich Little to be. Um, Very fine. And yet he's in a very different show from the one that Josh Arcavelli has directed. 
And the real problem with this show is the direction. It is truly directed like a French farce. Now, I'm very surprised this happened because it's based on a book by Jeff Shepard. And obviously, Jeff Shepard is around because as you walk into St. Clements, at least the day I was there, there he was selling the book on which this play has been based. So uh, should you care to buy the book, there he is ready and willing and able to sell it to you. And he's a character in the play because he was a lawyer who was involved with, uh, it was a young lawyer. And of course, um, old lawyer that he was assigned with didn't believe in him very much any more than um, uh, Professor Callahan believed in L. Woods uh, uh, doing a good job in Legally Blonde. <laughs> so anyway, he has to prove himself. But the thing is, um, he walks, the actor who plays him walks with such a funny gait. Um, it, it's, it's comic and this is supposed to be a serious play. Aside from Rich Little, who ironically enough is famous for being funny, who plays it straight, the rest of it is done so ludicrously. So I'm very sorry to say this because I would think that this would be a very interesting idea that what would have happened had Richard not, Nixon not resigned on August 9th, 1974? What if he took it um, to the next degree saying, no, I'm not, as he did say in his concession speech, uh, I am not a quitter. Well, here he says, I am not a quitter and I'm not quitting. And um, I will say that he gets lost for a while. Uh, there's a good um, 20 minutes, maybe even a half hour where he's not on stage at all uh, because the lawyers are dealing with uh, making deals or dealing with people. And can we get this one to say that? And how about, can you say this and that? And all the stuff you expect in a trial. Um, and uh, what goes on behind the scenes in the trial. It's all there. But my, I wish they had a different director who didn't think it was hilarious to direct it this fashion. Mm. So it's very, very sad under the circumstances. Peter, I, I'm thinking that I didn't look it up, but Rich Little must be quite elderly at this point. Was he fine as far as that? Yeah, um, uh, he is in his 80s, yes. Um, it is a question that a lot of people have asked of me, Michael. It's, it's funny that you should too. And um, yes, he's in his 80s, but uh, no, um, uh, very game and um, no, no problem there whatsoever. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's doing his job. I wish the director had done a different job. That's too bad. Yeah. All right. You also saw uh, Nimi Madre at Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Uh, so tell us about this. Well, uh, this is a one-man show, um, and uh, of course, it's one of those things where you say, um, is it a one-man show in the sense that um, the uh, gentleman who is doing it, who has written it, um, is is not uh, playing uh, a man at all, uh, as Madre, of course, um, does <laughs> indicate mother in Spanish, and um, what he's doing is playing his mother, and um of course, it's it's the issue that's going on here is um, she has a gay son. She's not terribly happy about it. Um, and uh, so he gives his feelings from the vantage point of the mother. So um, so the gentleman's name is Arturo Luis Soria. OK, and um, there he is on stage. Um, the Rattlesticks are a very small space, but I will tell you, you would think from the audience reaction, it was not a small space because they really were crazy about it. And uh, uh, there are points where he's uh, dealing with Gloria Estefan and um, Cher and uh, people like that. But he does talk about what it's like to um, to have his gender issues and sexuality issues with his family and um, and also, you know, being from um, this background, um, uh, this Brazilian um, background, I believe it is that uh, 
that he uh, has problems with. And so um, we get the impression that he is a drag queen um, by either profession or uh, as a hobby or in his real life or what have you. But but that's part of it as well. So what you're dealing with is conflict uh, that you've heard many, many times, of course. How many times have we heard stories where uh, kids have had to uh, battle with their parents about being gay? Sure. Um, But it's nice to see it from a different vantage point, meaning uh, a foreign vantage point to what it is. I mean, we are dealing with a situation we hear the expression Latin lovers. Well, uh, is the onus on Latin people even stronger than on um, conventional Caucasian white people to be macho? Uh, The word macho, after all, comes from (laughs) this culture. So uh, so that's a big issue here. And so it's nice to hear it from a different perspective. And that's what gives Nimia Madre its um, its unique perspective that we don't hear from other places. So uh, so uh, it's only an hour. It's only an hour. Um, it, it, it's not going to take much of your time. So keep that in mind as well. If you go up a deep, steep and very narrow stairway to the Rattlestick Theater on Waverly Place. So um, so uh, a good time was had by many. Okay, so that uh, wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, uh, Peter, do we have an answer for trivia from two weeks ago? She never appeared on Broadway, but she did make movies of three Broadway hits and one Broadway flop, as well as appearing in a film that would become a Tony-winning musical. She had three husbands. And while she didn't take the last name of the third, had she done so, she would have then had the name of one of Broadway musicals first superstars who are both these women. Well, I'm talking about Marilyn Monroe, who did the film versions of the Broadway hit Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The Seven Year Itch and Bus Stop and the Broadway flop The Sleeping Prince, which was renamed The Prince and the Showgirl. The film that later became a Tony winning musical was Applause because Monroe appeared in All About Eve as well. Her third husband was Arthur Miller. So had she taken his name, she would have become Marilyn Miller whose name you might have known had she not died at 37. But 20 audiences knew her from the smash hits, Sally and Sonny, and she was really a very significant uh, presence way back then. Tony Janicki reclaimed his first place crown, followed by Paul Witte, Jack Leshner, Brigadude, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question. It's a play that opened on the same day that Oklahoma did, only many years later, and off-Broadway. Unlike Oklahoma, it wasn't a musical, and unlike Oklahoma, it only ran 16 performances. But this play included a woman who would win a Tony only a year after the play had closed. More to the point, if this play hadn't been produced and she and one of the co-producers hadn't met, someone else would have won an Oscar 30 years later. What's the play? Who won the Tony? Who was the co-producer? And who won the Oscar 30 years later? (laughs) Okay, if you have those answers, 
Email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in the musical moment for this week? Well, uh, many of our musical moments have celebrated anniversaries of shows, uh, usually the original productions. But in this case, I'd like to commemorate a very significant revival of a show, namely the 1976 revival of Guys and Dolls, which had an all-Black cast. And the song I'm going to pick is a beautiful rendition of the song More I Cannot Wish You by someone named Emmett Babe Wallace, who I looked up, and uh, that was only his second of two Broadway credits. He appeared on Broadway in 1946. Wow. In an all-Black production of Liz Estrada, and then uh, uh, in 1976 in Guys and Dolls. Uh, this uh, song, More I Cannot Wish You, is frequently cited by many people as a throwaway, and a lot of people don't like it. And in fact, I just recently saw a video of a comedy uh performance of a comedy song by um, a, a, a female comedian who did a whole number on, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy who sings the song that nobody likes in the show. <laughs> and uh-huh. there was, uh, there was no direct mention of, of that song as far as I know, but it certainly was obviously one of the ones uh, that, that were being targeted. And I guess maybe when it's performed traditionally, it can feel that way, but I am going to tell you, just please listen to this. And uh, first of all, and Emmett Babe Wallace just sings it so beautifully and with such great feeling. But also, aside from that, the uh, the uh, rearrangement and the reorchestrations of the song uh, for that production, they were done by, let's see, uh, music arranged by Danny Holgate and Horace Ott uh, and orchestrated also by those two gentlemen. I, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And if in, in this performance, I think you will agree that it, it sounds like one of the most beautiful songs that Frank Lesser ever wrote. So that's uh, our very, very special musical moment for this week. All right. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Mansions I can wish you Seven footmen all in red And calling cards upon a silver tray But more I cannot wish you Than to wish you find your love Your own true love this day
something to wish you find your love your own true love this day with the sheep's eye and the licorice tooth and the strong eye 